Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're so glad you're tuning into this episode and I'm excited to introduce to you Greg Ferrand. And uh, I, I actually was heard Greg being interviewed on another podcast called Homebrewed Christianity with Trip Fuller. And I loved just uh, what Greg was about. I loved hearing his story. So I thought, man, I'm going to try to hunt him down and see if I can get him on Spirituality Adventures. Greg, thanks for joining us. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. He just he, he's been the executive director of Second Breath, and we're going to talk about that. But but just recently is in a transition and we'll we'll let you catch us up on that as well. But uh, let's first just dive into your kind of your background story. I always like to get a little origin story, kind of orient sure. us to your where you were born, where you grew up, sort of your, your spiritual journey, you know, yep. give, give us a little overview. All right. Well, um, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, but before I was one, we moved to Japan uh, and my mother and father worked for the national security agency. I didn't know that at the time, all I knew is government, but we were in the national security agency. We moved to Japan. We were there for, until I was five, moved back to the States for a year or two, then moved to Taiwan where we were posted again. Uh, and this was not military life, you know, we're off base uh, and just living in the countryside that was outside of Taipei. And I was there uh, right up until sixth grade uh, when I came back uh, to the States and we moved back to Maryland, which Fort Meade is the NSA headquarters. So we were somewhat near uh, there and and also very close to the DC area, uh, Bethesda, uh, those kind of areas, the suburbs of uh, right outside of DC. So then sixth or 12th grade, I was in, uh, that area my parents when we uh, the little brief time we moved back from japan uh they were curious my mother grew up uh reorganized latter-day saints uh which is a, a you know mormonism and she let go of that her father was one of the leading patriarchs in the country really um, which was fascinating so, you know yeah. the headquarters is here in kansas city or independent oh, is that right yeah it's right here in kansas city who's that because i know some of I actually okay. he and it might be one of the okay so she's very fastidious about this and she's told me so many times but huh. when uh the founder uh died there was uh some some followed Brigham Young right and they became the Mormons and another followed his uh son right and and that became the group that my my mother's family was a part of and they their main state was in iowa oh, okay um and so his name was roy cheville he okay. wrote a bunch of books and a uh, really interesting guy uh, the, but she really they, wanted no, nothing to do with that they recently went through a pretty big uh uh morphing of their theology and renamed themselves community of christ and actually right a bit more into the process theology world to some which is degree. fascinating to yeah, some yeah. degree yeah so, <laughs> to some degree that how it gels with the book of mormon from my understanding but yes it is it is it is fascinating interesting well anyway keep rolling oh so my and my dad kind of grew up as an atheist in long island my mother yeah. grew up in iowa they met and uh but they it was not a, a large spiritual tradition but they came back and fell in love with the episcopal church of all places uh and i think it was very open uh, you know accepting um, they loved kind of the ancient liturgy. Um, and I had, you know, I was forced to go. I even was an acolyte, which is the, you know, part of the carrying down the cross or carrying down the torches, sitting up there on the the, the altar in the front. Uh, but I had, I thought, you know, I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and we came back and fortunately I started deteriorating pretty, pretty quickly coming back in the sixth grade, uh, having grown up overseas, but, um, I was, I was an American, but I never li really lived in America. So I didn't understand the culture or the rules. Um, I remember, uh, you know, in Taiwan where I've been living was about 10 years behind the trends of what was happening in the States. Cause this is way before the internet, right? This is back in like the late seventies, early eighties. 
And so I remember my first day of sixth grade, I was so excited, but I was wearing, this was the day, and you'll remember this because we're, we're near the, the, we're, our Venn overlap of age is pretty significant, but I was still wearing like the short OP shorts and the wristbands and like the tube tops with tube socks with the colors on the top. Uh, and I was still taking a bath like twice a week. And I just roll out with my bed head. And I remember that. And I just, I was, I thought I was on fire, man. I was like, I had my wristband, you know, I had my socks pulled up, you know, and then I get on the bus and it was like the first day of sixth grade, I get on the bus and everybody goes quiet. Like maybe a, I was the new kid, but everyone went quiet as soon as I got on the bus and they were all wearing like corduroy pants and Izod button ups and they gelled hair and they, and one kid, Jeremy from the back of the bus yells out, what's wrong with your hair? And everybody started laughing at me. That was my introduction to American culture with my peers. And I remember I was like, I was mortified. I went home. I told my mom, we've got to go to the mall. I need new clothes. And then it was for then it was a quest to try to fit in and always feeling like pretty good at chameleoning on the outside, but inside feeling really disconnected. And I would say that was a, a significant, you know, it's, it started clearly with the experience at that age, but it really defined a lot of my trajectory. Uh, and now I view it as a superpower, but then it was like mm. kryptonite, man. It was, it yeah. slaughtered me at that age. So anyway, yeah. that's, that's kind of my background in a nutshell. Yeah. So, um, g- g- t- help us with your spiritual journey. How did you, cause I know you ended up becoming a fairly conservative, uh, reformed theo in the reform theology. Oh, yeah. Okay. So get us from core. I was From a five pointer man. School, uh, you know, misfit to, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, it, so it was, it was, um, we, I was back in the DC area, uh, for high, for, for, the, you know, middle school. And then I, I think my parents could sense that I wasn't doing well. Like in middle school, like the popular kids, and, and this is way back in the day when it was clicks, you know, back nowadays, my kids in school, it's like way more accepting, you know, but back then there's like jocks, you know, theater geeks, uh, you know, the, you know, and it was all categorized and like the, I felt like an outsider, but the, the popular kids let me hang out with them, but kind of like a jester, you know, they would just, I was like a punching bag almost, you know, like I felt like that little tiny chihuahua running around the bulldog, you know, and all the cartoon, old cartoons, like just yipping and getting attention. And I think my parents saw that I was not doing well. So they had the wisdom to send me instead of the massive public school in DC, Walt Whitman, uh, they sent me to this uh, Episcopal prep school, which I'm grateful for. And and then I was not excited about it, but I'm grateful because it was a smaller, safer environment where I could only get in so much trouble. And I was probably the worst element there because I, I was kind of the kid that would be drawn to the worst element or they were drawn to me. And it was helpful that I was kind of the worst element there because I, it, it you know, I couldn't get much lower. And, uh, and I was good again, good at trying to figure out what was accepted. You know, I, I was, playing lacrosse. My grades were okay. I had the pretty girlfriend, uh, but inside I just felt like more and more just, uh, pain, anxiety. Uh, I I was kind of epicurean in the sense that anything I wanted to do, I would do it. Uh, if it was a drug, I would try it. If it was hooking up with as many girls as I could, I'd try it. And it was trying all these stupid things that I, you know, that, and I was a really angry drunk. Um, I was the kid, I was a tiny kid. I, when I was entering the ninth grade, I was four foot 11 and weighed less than a hundred pounds. So I hadn't hit puberty yet. And I was like this little mouthy kid that learned to, you know, be really harsh with my words. It's kind of some self I grew a foot that year, but still it was kind of the die was cast and uh so th- there was all this kind of inward sense of not fitting in not belonging i think a lot of it was i didn't have a, you know now that i've studied a lot more of this stuff i never really did, had a, a secure attachment uh you know my family system uh in many ways uh moving around i think i by the time i was 12 we'd already moved something like 12 times uh and so never really having uh that root structure and then i started just trying to numb the pain you know, and so at that point it was getting more and more into intense drugs, but simultaneously trying to maintain this facade of togetherness. And I remember it reached a boiling point uh, when I was 17. It was January 3rd of 1990. Uh, I remember the day, January 3rd of 1990, we had a lacrosse party. And I remember I went to a girl to, I went to a room to hook up with my girlfriend 
And I remember I had like zero desire to be intimate with her. And I'm just like, I'm 17. I'm supposed to have hormones through the roof. And I was just like, I know even this will not bring me any happiness or life. Like even, even this is bullshit. And it was a place where I remember thinking, I just started crying. My girlfriend's like, what is going on with you? And I'm like, whatever. And I just walked out of the room and I, I went up to the keg and I put the keg tap in my mouth and I just turned it on. And I just laid next to the keg tag, just drinking it like as, as quick as I could drink it or breathe. I was just laying there and I was just trying to check out. And my buddy kind of picked me up off the floor and graciously drove me home. That was a Saturday night. That Sunday, uh, February 4th, I spent the day trying to figure out how I was going to end my life. Mm. Uh because I just thought I didn't know Sartre at the time, but Sartre who said, you know, man is a useless passion, you know, that pretty much that we were living in this world without no meaning. We have all these longings and passions and there's nothing that can scratch the itch. And it's, and, and I'm like, if I'm, if I'm 17 and I'm already at this point where I'm so miserable, I, I cannot continue this for another 50, 60, 70 years. Mm. Uh, what's, what's the point? Yeah. And so I spent Sunday trying to figure out ways that I was going to uh, commit suicide. And that that Monday morning, uh, a buddy of mine, Kevin, and Kevin was actually the one that drove me home. Uh, Kevin would often volunteer to be my designated driver. And I was like, great, man, one less thing for me to worry about. He'd just drive me around when I'd just get hammered. And when I was hammered, we'd have these great conversations. You know, he was a big kind of into philosophy and reading, and I was into Nietzsche, and he was into Kierkegaard. So we get into all these, you know, <laughs> head, what we thought were brilliant debates. I'm sure that they were level one, you know, silliness. But at the time, we thought we were geniuses. Uh, and uh, But he was a Christian. Uh, and I didn't even know what that was. I mean, this is DC, you know, and it's not like down South where it's the Bible belt and people are telling you to come to Jesus. You know, it's, he was just this really kind guy. And even when I tried to fight him and I was, you know, he would look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was an all-star defenseman on a lacrosse team. He was ripped huge. And even when I tried to fight him and he could have squashed me, he was always kind to me on Monday morning. Like everyone else would be furious with me because I tried to fight and I was such a, I was such a, a angry drunk. But he was always kind on Monday. And so he really earned this respect. I was I, like, I really respected this kid. And I go into school on Monday morning. It's February 5th of 1990. And he walks up and he says, uh, Greg, I just want you to know I've been praying for you. And I'd never heard that. Like I'd never, no one, I mean, again, this is not the South where they say that every meal, right? You know, but <laughs> this is like, I'd never heard that. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I just want you to know I've been, I've been praying for you. And it, it, because of how kind and loving he had been towards me for a long time, like it really landed. I was like, dude, I don't even know what that means, but the fact, and I don't believe in God, but that your intention towards me is kind and that what you want, what is good for me. And you're talking to your imaginary uh, unicorn deity about me. That's I thank you. <clears throat> and, and I remember right then we went and sat down and he said, well, where, where kind of you with your beliefs, and I said, honestly, man, I'm at a point where it feels like there's a dark cloud above my head, like a roiling, boiling, dark cloud as far as the eye can see. And I feel oppressed. I feel depressed. I feel anxious. And I didn't tell him I was contemplating committing suicide. But uh, and then he started sharing with me what he believed and not in any kind of four spiritual laws. Let me try to convert you. I've got an agenda to get you in. But he was just sharing with me genuinely what he believed. And I honestly don't even remember the specifics of what he said. But experientially, all I knew is that one moment I did not believe in God. I thought God was a crutch for the weak. You know, uh, it, and clearly I was doing so well with my philosophy, but I thought God was a crutch for the weak. And one moment I didn't believe in God and the next, like existentially, ontologically, you know, experientially within my being, I knew that there was a God hmm. that that loved, that existed and loved me. And and, and in that moment, I described it to, to my friend Kevin. I was like, it was like a corner of that dark roiling cloud got lifted and I saw this drop of blue sky that was so beautiful. I realized like every drug I'd taken, every, you know, hookup, every crazy thing I did to try to feel fu fulfill myself that never filled me up. Like that was the source, this blue sky, this divine mystery, like that's the source of, of everything. So I just went full bore and that's kind of my personality. I went 110 miles. I remember I, I marched up to all my friends. I was like, Dudes, I'm not doing any more drugs because that's hampering this 
and I didn't call it. Yeah, it was not Jesus or Buddha. I didn't know yet. I mean, my estimation and my perception. I just knew that it was in this divine mystery, and and this was the source of it. I went to my girlfriend and I said, "We're not having sex anymore." And it was just, it was almost this reactive place of, these are the things that I look to for life that, in fact, hampered me and hindered me. All I want to do now with my life is explore this drop of blue sky, this this divine mystery, and invite others into that same dance. And pretty much at 17, that's defined the entire trajectory of my life all the way to 51. I mean, it was a, uh, it, it, and there's a lot of evolution and roller coastering through all sorts of theological traditions since then. But that was something that really changed everything for me when I was 17. Interesting. Wow. So it's kind of interesting because it wasn't, it wasn't like uh, a, a classic, maybe evangelical, like right. I, I literally, you know, was doing drugs and walked an aisle at a Southern Baptist youth camp. Yeah, baby. And yeah, cried I and gave my yeah. life to Jesus. So, mm. um, <laughs> and it changed me too. You know, I, two months yeah. later, I felt called to be a pastor and, and it changed the trajectory of my life for sure. Um, but, uh, interesting. So, um, so one of the things that, uh, that intrigued me about your story was you, you ended up, getting into reformed theology i'm kind of yeah i'm kind of want you to take us from uh your reformed theology maybe give us a a, a view into that but then sure how you've described that as like a a super intellectual yeah you know western aristotelian mind space type of um religious experience and then and then how, what what drew you into what you talk about now so much as an embodied spirituality. Yeah. And what, yeah. Help. Cause some people might, that might sound like weird outer space talk for sure. Some, some woo woo. woo. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. Help us with that journey from, from sort of the diving into the intellectual theological yeah. headspace to, um, you know, kind of where your spirituality is at. Take us through yeah. that. Absolutely. Any transition. So that happened, that, that kind of awakening happened when I was 17. So I was just about to graduate high school. And then I moved down to North Carolina uh, for college into the Bible Belt. And so before I left, like Kevin was a Christian. So I was intrigued by his Christianity. Um, and so I, I started going to his church, some with him. Uh, but it, I was still like, I didn't know if I was going to be a Buddhist. I didn't know if I was going to be a Christian. Uh, but at the same time, I was still so emotionally fragile, like all this stuff that had led up to that, you know, in my life, all that sense of lack of attachment, lack of security, insecure, and lack of identity. Like, so I needed a faith that was pretty binary and simple. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, I, I didn't like mystery. Uh, mystery was to be tolerated, but not celebrated. And so where I was at that point was, okay, so here's the good news. Jesus died for me. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. The world's going to hell in a handbasket and our main job is to get other people to go to heaven with us. So it was, it was super clear. It, it, it wasn't complex. So I was on campus at, 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 at UNC Greensboro down on the, the main drag Tate street, constantly evangelizing and witnessing, trying to get people to pray the, the prayer with me. Like it was, I was passionate about it. And I just thought it was really simple, but it was really stressful. I was so, I was terrified that I was, that it was like, I was gripping onto God and I was terrified that if I let go of this passionate grip, I was going to fall back in that place of darkness where I wanted to kill myself. So I was, I'd get up and have like three hour quiet times, like just about every morning on the golf course, like just reading my Bible and writing prayer. I mean, I was just like so intense uh, about it, but it was so anxiety producing because it was kind of existential dread that if I lose this, I'm a goner. Hmm. And around that time, someone gave me, this is such a weird book to give someone, but someone gave me a, a copy of Martin Luther's sermons on Galatians. Uh, and, uh, and so you're, you know, you're like 18 or 19. Yeah, I was like 18. I was, I was 18, <laughs> but, but as someone, I, I, and I'm not sure why they did. I, I can't even remember who, who gave it to me, but, uh, and then they, they also gave me his sermons on Romans, his argument on, on Romans and his argument on Galatians. And uh, he talked, he started talking about, passive grace, you know, that it was not, not earned, but in the same way that the earth receives the rain 
effortlessly. You know, we receive this grace from God. And 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 while we might be afraid of slipping out of God's hands, that God's hands are so big, we're never going to slip out of God's hands. It was, it was kind of this next step in my spiritual evolution of realizing that it wasn't about me gripping on, but me uh, being, me mm. allowing, me, me resting. Mm. Uh, uh, and I didn't know at that time, but it reminds me, you know, if you look at almost all of Jesus' imperatives, they're all about do not be afraid. Uh, you know, it's it's all these do nots of letting go of things. It's very little do's. All his imperatives are stop doing things and just be. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it was so this this beginning invitation of beginning to rest. And so I was like, well, who's this Martin Luther guy? Uh, and I didn't really know much about him at the time, except for you know the uh, the nailing the thesis on the door, you know, and, um, but I got into Martin Luther, which then led me to Calvin, uh, John Calvin, uh, which then led me to, uh, reformed church PCA, which was a pretty, pretty big church. And I went to a retreat where the pastor speaking was PCA. And what I loved about it, it was like, it was, it was like, it, it still maintained like that secure, simple root structure of, you know, that believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you're going to heaven. But it was like, it had lots of intellectual territory. And I was, and I was always, I loved reading and I loved thinking. And, and so it was like, it was kind of like I'd been living in this tiny little neighborhood. And I realized it was this whole city of like the neighborhood was still my secure little center, but I got to read all of these reformed theologians. Um, and, and part of it too, was this group really loved me and accepted me. Like they were so excited. I mean, of course, I mean, here I was 19, 18, 19 and was reading the same thing as all these 30 and 40 and 50 year olds and having these intensive conversations. So they love this young, passionate reformed nerd that was so driven to learn. Um, and so I really dove headlong into that. And during that time too, um, this same pastor was part of a, a, a missions board, and encouraged me to go overseas with this PCA mission. And so I ended up going to Uganda uh, as a college student. And then after I graduated, I went back as a missionary uh, for, a, for a couple of years in this reformed church. And then when I came back from that- a reformed city were you in, in Uganda or which so, town? Right. It was called Bundabugia, which is uh, on the Western, like we're four miles from the border of the Zaire, Congo. Okay. And so it's really like in, in the way that uh, people talk about West Virginia, uh, in the States, it was kind of the way if you're in Kampala, the capital of Uganda, they talk about Bundabugyo, like, like, honestly, it's just recently when we were there, there was no electricity, no running water, you know, yeah. nothing. Yeah. Now this time later, everyone there has a cell phone, a smartphone, but it was, uh, <laughs> a, a completely different kettle of fish back in the, uh, uh early nineties, mid nineties. So anyway, very, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Now it's back there. So I came back that pastor who was the, part of the board and in, invited me to his PCA church. They gave me a house. They gave me a job as campus minister. They paid for my se uh, seminary. Uh, so it was kind of like this welcoming coming back from overseas. And uh, yeah, it was like, it was such a place of belonging and financial security and need security that I just, you know, really splashed around in the PCA. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, I started in 97. It took me five years because I was working full time and starting to have kids. Finished up. Uh, and then they sent me to plant a church in Greensboro, North Carolina, which I started in 2001. Awesome. All right. And how long did you pastor that church? So I pastored that about nine years. We started out with like 10 people in the living room and uh, it grew to a few hundred people, um, which I know if Kansas City, bigger churches, uh, I've got some friends in the Northeast and out West. The idea of having a, a church of over a hundred is like a miracle. Uh, but down here in the Bible belt, you know, that's a little more, uh, you know, average. Um, yeah. and so I pastored there for about nine years, but I really started burning out, uh, when I was pastoring there and like, I could, I could write this. I literally had written like dissertations on the love of God, on the grace of God. Uh, earlier on, I was, you know, uh, very much into, I was a five point Calvinist, you know, I was, I, I've read it all. I read the footnotes. I read the footnotes, footnotes, like I could defend it. Um, and, but I found when I was in the actual trenches of ministry and in these people's lives, so much of what I intellectualized when, when, when you hear it, it was almost just like, if you could articulate the gospel clearly enough and biblically enough, then lives will change. If they get this information right, 
then their lives will change. Mm. And what I just found over and over again is that this intellectual, especially Western approach to spirituality, when we just hear this correct theology that's biblical, that we anticipate there's going to be real change. And it's just not true. That it, it that intellect alone will never change anyone. That I know most people can write dissertations on their issues, their parent issues, why they are the way they are, and there's not a single wit of change in their life because information alone will never change us. And so it was really disconcerting. I just kept thinking, you know, here I'm preaching and we've got all these people come in and, you know, they're from such different walks of life and, um, and people might get emotionally stirred and people might have a mountaintop experience and there might be some shifts, you know, gentle shifts here and there. But in, in terms of this change that Jesus embodied and talked about of the, the fruit of the spirit actually truly defining your inner landscape uh, and and your life being transformed. Uh, and I just didn't see it. I didn't see it in myself. I didn't see it in others. Uh, and so it really got me wrestling with this intellectualized approach to spirituality and beginning to question. And because I like to read, you know, then it was just like, whoa, whoa. Okay. You know, we, we all have our paradigms. We all have the lens through which we view things. We all have our fish tanks and it's hard to think outside of your existing fish tank, right? Cause it's just the way things are, but then new things begin to challenge it and bump up against it. And so I kind of poked my head out of my little PCA fish tank and I started looking around and thinking, uh, there's there's so much more to this. I mean, Christendom it, uh, globally, I mean, just with all these different traditions and approaches, you know, um, mm. it, whether it's the vineyard movement and what they're emphasizing or the PCA with the inte- intellectualized. And I did. And I went through a very charismatic phase. I mean, I made sure to, to I could I could speak in tongues. I could pray. I could just do. Right. I mean, I went to the holy laughter. I mean, I mean, I just was all about the experience of everything, <laughs> all the all, of all the things. Right. And uh but there, again, it there's was, a little yeah, bit of an embodiment in, in the there is. charismatic Pentecostal tradition, a little, you know, and it kind of borders on mysticism a little bit. Yes. I, I, but, I, I would say in, in most of the traditions, uh, it, in most Western traditions, it's not there. It's fascinating when you trace the root structure back of, of those movements, you uh-huh. know, uh, it's, it's a fascinating kind of evolution. And, you know, even back to the great awakening when Jonathan Edwards was preaching, and George Whitfield, they would have these, you know, where yeah. people would start barking like dogs yeah. and uh, doing all these wild things. Yeah, the the religious was, affections that they. Right, right. And he about, wrote yeah. that to say, yeah. uh-huh. how do we know people have authentic transformation and conversion? He said, yeah. these are the things that define authentic conversion, not these special experiences. But he was saying, this is how you know it really landed. He wrote the religious affections to prove what <laughs> really mattered, not <laughs> just the mountaintop experience. So it's been around for a while, but I would agree with you that in terms of the different traditions, especially within the ev- large evangelical umbrella, the vineyards and charismatics, while they always have you know their, your own weaknesses to your strengths, I would say there is an embodiment there, and also I would say a acknowledgement and appreciation of joy mm-hmm. as a part of what it means to be spiritually alive mm-hmm. that is lacking in a lot of the other traditions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we weren't the frozen chosen, but no, no, <laughs> but we were... that was me. That was me, baby. That was me. I was the frozen chosen. You know, it's interesting because you know, I'm I've always had a nerdy intellectual side. So I've always been getting degrees and you mm. still love that. And I yep. you know, I'm still still learning and growing. But um, but, you know, I did. You know, I've been through the Southern Baptist and then the Vineyard and and um but still had a lot of anxiety and which led to my 30 years of insomnia, which then led me mm. eventually to try to treat my insomnia with, with, uh, I was a couple of years, two and a half years on Xanax and alcohol every night to try to sleep mm. and yeah. uh, wound up in rehab. Mm. And one of the, you know, you know, AA 12 step world recovery world has all these yeah. uh, statements. <laughs> and one of them for me was, you know, cause I, I always had a lot of confidence in my ability to think my way through things and study, mm. you know, read and study and get degrees and then, then teach and preach and all that. And one of the phrases was your best thinking got you here. You know, you're sitting here in a rehab, a bunch of drunks and alcoholics and yep. addicts and your best thinking got here. I was like, you son of a bitch. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> I like right. I thought I could think my way out of anything, you know. Anyway, yeah. no, I remember that there, there was a moment in uh, in marriage counseling, probably twenty years ago, where you know I felt kind of like uh, 
uh, I, I didn't, I, I was an intellectual snob. I, I, I hope genuinely I'm not anymore. I'm 51. So I've learned, <laughs> I've gotten my ass handed to me enough. Um, but at the time I was like, I don't want to go to a therapist who's not smarter than me. Like, right. I was just like, they, they need to be smarter than me. And so I would go and test them out and I would, and I was good at self-diagnosis. So they would ask a question. I'd figure out where they were going. I'd give them the summary of my issues. I'd give the summary of self-diagnosis, you know, and that kind of thing. And we were on the third session. And the, I was in the middle of what I thought was a very uh, eloquent uh, self-diagnostic uh, soliloquy. And she says, she says, let me stop you right there, Greg. And I was like, she says, you're very good at diagnosing yourself. And I was like, well, thank you. You know, you said it, not me. She said, you know, but you're very good at diagnosing yourself, but I see no change in your life. Mm. And it was one of these things. It was one of those moments where like, yeah, my thinking had gotten here that I could, I could write dissertations on all these issues, but that would, again, it did not lead to authentic change. And I put so much trust in my intellect as the primary vehicle, which is a very Western uh, presupposition. Uh, And that, that if we understand something well enough, it will lead to change. And, and again, it's one of those things that my thinking, as much as I appreciate my, uh, my neocortex uh it is <laughs> profoundly limited and only a part of me yeah um and and, and up until the the renaissance uh, up until the enlightenment up until a lot of the western approach and you know I'm a, there's a lot of things i could say about that but i would say you know we in the west have we've we've placed the mind uh as the the penultimate and the body is there just kind of to walk it around like a vehicle yeah um but the, 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 the real beauty is in the mind alone. And that is certainly, I think, profoundly missing the point of what Jesus taught and embodied. I would say what most of the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures and our New Testament teach and embody, that it is, it, it's not the, the, the primary. I would say it's a beautiful, elegant part. But if we neglect what I would just say, the heart, if we neglect uh, the body, uh, then, then I think that we're, we're, we're walking around with just like a third of our potential and it will never be what the fullness of life that Jesus taught and embodied. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so when I was sitting in rehab, um, this was, you know, to end of 18, 2019, I did get introduced to, um, a therapy model called DBT, dialectical behavioral mm-hmm. therapy. And um, the one thing I that interests me about that was the meditation, the mindful meditation component. It's, it's one of the, and I started doing some meditation. And then when I got out of rehab, um, met the, the, the biggest DBT therapist here in Kansas city, who kind of trained with Marsha Linehan and um, mm. started Lilac center here in Kansas city got to know her actually ended up doing some therapy with her and stuff like that. And then I found a, a mindful meditation teacher hmm. who uh, I've been in that group for over two years. And then that led me to, um, Oh, and then I'm in, I just recently in the maybe six months ago, got into a centering prayer group with oh, yeah. Jack uh, Willamy, who used to be on a CAC board, the, the Richard oh, yeah. center Richard for Rose, Action yeah. contemplation board. I'm in a centering prayer group with him. I consider myself very much a novice, uh, mm. you know, beginner mind in this whole world of, of met of mindful meditation. Yeah. And I'm doing a two year training with, with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield as well. I love that. that yeah, I'm just on the front program. end of that, you know? Um, but it's been interesting to me because I, I would say that I have a overactive amygdala. Like I've been <laughs> diagnosed with uh, anxiety disorder at the age mm-hmm. of four, five, six, when I think back on it, but I'm so old that we never thought about trying right. to treat any of that stuff, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, so you just kind of learn to con- And then, you know, I'm the shy introverted kid. Like I was voted the quietest kid in my senior class Wow, of a huge high school. Wow. And, uh, you know, get saved from drugs and feel called to be a pastor and then start down the, the education intellectual route kind of got into the, you know, the Baptist charismatic world and then the vineyard world. And, uh, you know, I prayed, I, you know, I did, I did what I would have called meditation was more like, you know, reflecting on scripture kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. Yep. Um, but the, the mindful meditation, you know, like where I, where I sit and allow things to arise 
whether they're feelings, whether they're thoughts, whether they're the things in my body that are going on. And then actually trying to be non-judgmental, compassionate, open, curious about all. I always tried to defeat my negative emotions. Yeah. Right. Like battle them, you know, like Paul's the flesh and the spirit. Well, I'm going to whip, you know, yeah. oh, I've got a lustful thought. I'm going to whip it. Or I'm, I've got a, a <laughs> totally man. I'm going to beat it up. I'm going to, I'm going to, yep. I'm going to self-discipline these suckers, you know? Yep. Absolutely. And then I just had too many things that converged on me that led to such a massive meltdown where I lost literally almost everything except my life, mm-hmm. career, marriage, community, literally mm-hmm. like everything to the point, and I was so angry at myself. I was, if there was a God, I was angry at God, mm. angry at, at some individuals, but it, it felt I was extraordinarily filled with shame and humiliation because my my most embarrassing things had been broadcast all over the world, like publicly, yeah. you know, on the Kansas City Star and yeah. Christianity Today and Charisma and all these places. And I was just... Oh. I, I was close to suicide probably myself, just not that long ago, you know, three, three and a half years ago kind of thing. Yeah. And then, you know, Roar, Richard Roar, somebody sent me a falling upward. And then I, I started getting into the mind, the mindful meditation. And I, you know, I'm, I'm feel like a beginner in it, but yeah, like, I'm curious, like talk to us, like help people understand why is it important to move out of your head and, for spirituality connection with the divine. Yeah. Why is it important to move out of your head and into your body? Why is that so important? Well, I I mean, first just kind of anchoring it into, (laughs) this is not, this is not a, a a new age woo idea, but even (laughs) literally when, when Jesus was asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment, you know, he, of course, he's quoting Deuteronomy, but he said, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, you know, with all your uh, mind and all your soul. And he's a, a teacher in the wisdom tradition. He just wasn't, you know, grabbing random body parts and thoughts. You know, he just was, it, 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 his words had meaning. And so in and, and the Hebrew understanding, especially the, the understanding that there was a, an intelligence, there was a wisdom, not only in your mind, but that you could love God also with your heart and that you could love God with your soul. And the soul in the, this was the big debate in Jesus's day, but up until that entire point, the soul was not a separate entity. That was really, a lot of that was introduced by Greek thought as this, as the soul was everlasting um, and would continue after the death of the body. In most of the Hebrew scriptures, the soul and the body were inseparable. Uh, and so, uh, this, this notion of love your, love God with your mind, love God with your heart and love God with your soul body. And that these, these were almost like three distinct centers of wisdom and intelligence. Um, and that was very much understood in the early church. It was very much understood, uh, especially as, you know, the gospel went East, not just West, uh, and, and the different emphases of it in the West. And I, and I think this is a lot, like you mentioned earlier, due to Aristotle and Plato, because the gospel didn't just go into tabula rasas culturally, it, it went to pre-existing notions of the divine. So when it went into Roman and Greek held Western territory, it was primarily interpreted through kind of a platonic Aristotelian lens. And there's so much on that. And I won't nerd out on that, but I would say in in that process, it went very intellectual. It was Richard Rohr actually said that the church in the West in many ways has been far more influenced by Plato than by Jesus. Rohr said that. And I, and I think he's right. Um, in, into this disembodied spirituality. Uh, and, and so, so, so in the West, I think we've, we've elevated the mind, uh, like we think the mind is this priceless Stradivarius violin. And we think that the heart and the body are like kazoos, you know, just these kind of, uh, you, uh, what does your heart say about that? It sounds woo woo, right? Or what's your gut sense? What's your body? That sounds woo woo too. Yeah. But it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't for so many of the centuries of, of the church. It's just how we've been raised in the Western fish tank of elevating the mind. And when you go back and you begin to understand that there really is a wisdom and brilliance in your heart mm. and a wisdom and brilliance uh, in your body. Mm. And 
that it's in, instead of just realizing that your heart is also this priceless Stradivarius violin and your body is also this priceless Stradivarius violin. And when you have all three centers kind of in alignment, I think that's actually the fulfillment of the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord, your God with your mm-hmm. mind, heart, and soul. But we don't know how to do it. Like people in the West, we don't know how to do it. And when people hear about things like meditation or centering prayer or breath work, which was very common in the first century, by the way. Yeah. And in fact, the, the desert fathers and mothers taught breath prayer all the time. I mean, it was very common practice in the church. We've neglected it now. Um, but it's, it's kind of like even if, if like, for example, culturally, it's acceptable with the, in the vineyard worship experience. If you want to raise your hands high when you are moved emotionally, if you go into a conservative Presbyterian church and raise your hands, culturally, you're going to be a weirdo. Like people are going to say you are showing off. You're being too demonstrative. Uh, it's, it's impolite. It's distracting. And so each little cultural bubble has their rules in, in the West. You know, we have been so raised to be disembodied that I remember when yoga started getting popular in the eighties, like yoga was totally woo. woo. Like yoga was like, like even in that song, do you like pina coladas? You know, his whole thing is if you're not into yoga, then that's good thing. Like yoga was considered woo woo. Now it's completely accepted, but but understanding that when we talk about embodied spirituality, we're not talking about something new. We really are returning back to the way that Jesus taught, modeled, and embodied. And so much of the early church, I would say, particularly before uh, Constantine and that whole situation in Rome, where it became one of the dominant religions of the Roman Empire under uh, state control, and it became about who's in and who's out. Here's the, you know, do you believe in the Nicene Creed? If you don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. But prior to that, in the early church, it was much more about a spiritual movement. It wasn't about who's in, who's out, and it was much more embodied. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, uh, I would say that when we begin things like meditation or breath work, what we're taking is all this brilliant information we've been carrying in our minds, this brilliant dissertations that we can write about our issues, about the divine, about God's love, about Jesus, about all of these pieces, about forgiveness. And it creates space for these brilliant thoughts to actually land into our hearts and into our bodies where we experience authentic transformation that we can't think our way. You know, like we both have learned, you can't think your way, you know, it's in AA, they talk about stinking thinking, right? We can't think our way out of our issues, that it takes embodiment. And so we're simply creating space for these truths that we've studied and know to to move from our head to land in our hearts and in our bodies, where they shift from mere intellectual concept to actually embodied experience. Mm. Um, And and I would say in terms of my own experience that there's been many roller coaster rides, even within the uh, wisdom tradition, uh, contemplative world. I mean, I've had highs and lows and burnouts. And I mean, this is not the magic uh, pill, you know, that is going to finally get you there. But I would say in terms of what leads to real self-awareness, real change, an authentic spirituality that begins to mirror much more of what Jesus taught. And I would say even, uh, that our, our New Testament gospels are, are articulating that the way, the most powerful way there is just take a moment to actually stop, step off the hamster wheel of what the Buddhists call monkey mind of just yeah. trying to think your way there. And in the quiet, like for example, and I'm sorry, I'll, I know I'm blathering. This is my last thing. And then I'll give some, some space, but it's kind of like some of my most favorite intimate moments with partners or with friends are when we're not saying a word as when like for example you're walking along the beach and the sun is setting and it the colors are so gorgeous that it literally stops you in your tracks and you know that there's this like sam said in in mordor there's a beauty that transcends that evil can never touch you know these transcendent Mm. moments and if if someone says a word if someone tries to speak a word then they're ruining it. You know, it's like, shut up. This is not a time for words. This is a time just to uh, to splash around in the beauty or a song that you make everyone in the car be quiet to, because if anyone speaks, it's going to mess up the beauty of the poetry and what the music is doing to your being. Or there's times when you're like eating with friends in a big group and someone makes a joke at the end of the table and the laughter rolls down the table like a warm blanket and washes over you and you realize you're connected relationally. You're not alone. And it might just be for a moment, you know, but it's these it's these moments where we shift from just mere intellectual understanding to an experience from the inside out. And so when we talk about embodied uh, spirituality, we're talking about genuine uh, experience of the divine 
from the inside out. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within. All of this is already inside of us. We don't have to get it. We don't have to attain it. We don't earn anything. We've already got it. We just learn to rest into it. And a lot of that rest is getting out of quieting the monkey mind, quieting mm-hmm. the cacophony in our brains. As C.S. Lewis was talking about, the great enemy, enemy of spiritual growth is noise. Yeah. And and I think that all that intellectual cacophony, 90% of the time is unhelpful noise. And mm-hmm. meditation, centering prayer, breath work helps us shift out of that noise, step off the, the, the hamster wheel and get into a place of quiet where we actually begin to realize, oh my God, I've been nested and resting in the divine this whole time. And I've been trying to earn it, but now I'm experiencing this rest of connection. And and maybe I can use poetry to express it, but this is an experience that's beyond words. Mm. Um, and that to me is an invitation of embodied spirituality. Um, and there's many traditions that have been doing it for centuries. Uh, and again, it's p- part of the early church, but I think that's, we're kind of returning back to the heart of things to the missing puzzle piece that's fallen out of Christianity in the West was Cynthia Bourgeau's words. Mm. That's good. Yeah. Cause I, once I started getting into meditation, you know, I, I realized how harsh my inner critic voice is and how judgmental I was of my emotions, everything that my Preach. thoughts, my emotions, I, I would just judge everything. And again, try to battle it, suppress it, beat it up, win over it. If it was negative at all. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things in meditation that that I've, you know, literally sitting with all of that negativity that kind of bubbles up inside me and being compassionate and curious, Mm. non-judgmental, actually, you know, self-compassion, just that alone has been a really interesting piece because I always have been compassionate and grace-filled toward other people, but (laughs) my own, you know, I can, I can cuss myself out, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Just get, and then when I was so full of shame and in my darkest moment, when I just didn't even care if I lived or died, I just, I hated myself literally like that. I felt so much shame. I just hated myself. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things in the AA circles that is kind of an interesting embodiment, it's not breath work, it's not meditation, but when you sit in a circle of really wounded, broken people and they just get honest. Yeah vulnerable, something magical knits human hearts together and it doesn't radically gay, straight, black, white, rich, poor, just human vulnerability. Yeah. It's like, that's, that was the only place. Like if there's a God, that's church, man, that's what church was meant to be. Right. But then when I was sitting in these circles and would feel the spirit, you know, cause we were into the spirit moving, you know, come Holy spirit mm. stuff. And, but when I'd see that happen in those circles of vulnerability, it was like, that's the spirit, you know, yeah. it was that, that still is something I do weekly in groups, you know, and I um, love that. Yeah. It's, it's so you, so talk to us a little bit about um, second breath and then what your transition is right now, because you've, you've been the executive director of second breath now for what a decade or something, maybe. Well, so I was a part of, I was actually, uh, my journey led me to leave the PCA. I became an Episcopal priest uh, and was in a church and the church was actually where second breath was founded and had been going for about 30 years, but it was primarily like a, a spiritual school, similar to CAC, similar to Roar's thing. Uh, where people would come through, take they could take one-offs or they could do a three-year intensive program, you know, of the inward spiritual journey and understanding that inner landscape and then moving to your outward spiritual journey. And I found out about it in 2007 when I was still a PCA pastor and I was beginning to burn out though. And that's where I went to that, very skeptical. Mm. Uh, but it was such a gorgeous and fresh articulation of Christian spirituality that was actually resonant with science and resonant with my heart. And when I say fresh, I don't mean new. I mean, a lot, again, a lot of what they were teaching was just so much of what had been taught, you know, especially by the desert fathers and mothers in the early church and uh, so much of this tradition. And so it, it was a profound game changer. And it was the first place, all I knew at that point, the reason I went, I was burning out. I learned about just some meditation, but I knew nothing about it. So I went and I got this chair and I put it in my den 
And I would get up in the morning and I'm just saying, okay, I don't know anything about meditation. I don't know anything about centering prayer, but all I'm going to do is sit here. And I said, God, you know that I don't know jack shit. Clearly what I'm doing is not working out. Uh, And so I'm not going to do any, I'm not going to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. I'm not going to do my adoration, confession, Thanksgiving supplication. I'm not going to go through a prayer journal. I'm just going to sit here and literally do nothing. Mm. And for at least a half hour every morning, I was desperate at this point, desperate because I was burned out. And so uh, like, and I said, it's going to be like sitting at the beach. I just need your sunshine to wash over me and heal me. And my job is to do nothing. And I promise to do nothing. And so I would sit down and I've got, I'm 100% sure I've got ADD, but like you, man, I I was just before we were diagnosed with this thing back (laughs) in the seventies, they just said, you're a hyper kid. And that's what it is. So, you know, I was probably about two minutes into my very first time sitting in the chair and it was torture, man. Like I was, I was so bored. I was anxious. All I wanted to do was get on my phone, my smartphone and start surfing. All I wanted to do is turn on the TV, but desperation is a powerful motivator. So I would just sit there day after day. And initially it was excruciating, but after a few weeks and months of this, like things really started shifting. Like I started looking forward to it. It was like this little oasis. Mm. It was like this little uh, oasis in the, my crazy day. And soon the only time of day that I liked actually, cause I was still pastoring the PCA church at the time and it was exhausting. The only time of that I liked was sitting in my chair. And so I remember I said, I, I was praying to God. I was like, all right, God, how can I make chair time all day long? Like, how can I, I, I can't just sit in my chair. I got work to do so, but how can chair time and this quiet resting, learning to actually rest in your presence? Cause I started to experience like I actually started to experience a sense of deep inner peace and rest. I started experiencing this, that God was not far off, you know, off in the third heaven, but that I'm immersed in divine presence, that God really is closer than my thoughts and prayers. That shifted from things I'd preach about to actual experience of it. And it came from doing nothing. It came from literally doing nothing. And so I asked, you know, I need chair time to be more than, you know, just chair time. I need it to be all day long. And then right around that time, someone told me about second breath. It was then called servant leadership school, but it was second breath. And so I, and I went to this class and again, the only spiritual practice, quote unquote, I had new in the contemplative tradition was just sitting on my ass in my chair. They gave me this whole toolbox full of all these spiritual practices, like, all like you could incorporate them into all your whole day. Like when you're sitting in a meeting, when you're driving in your car, when you're stuck at a red light, you know, before you go to bed, you know, it was when you're walking through the woods, it just, and it, and it was kind of easy to do. It wasn't like this, you know, go sell everything you have and live in a cell in the mountains of the Himalayas. It was like made for people in real life, right. In and what we're doing. And it was such a profound game changer experientially for me of what it meant again it was that shift from mere intellectual and again this is that de- richard Rohr's definition of a mystic a mystic is not some woo-woo person living in a, a cement cell but he said simply put a mystic is someone who has shifted from mere intellectual systems of belief to actual inner experience mm. that's it from mere intellectual systems of belief to actual inner experience that's a mystic Mm. And so, and and so that's the invitation, how we begin to make this shift. And so that's what I feel like second breath was teaching me. And it was a vast variety when there were evangelicals, there were atheists, there was mainly, you know, progressives and liberals, like we were all there and it wasn't trying to teach us to some system of doctrine of, you know, it didn't say, do you literally believe in an Adam and Eve? You know, Mm. it was, it was just an invitation to understand Jesus is not just savior, but also a wisdom teacher that it wasn't just that he died on a cross, but he was teaching for years to teach us what it meant to live fully and freely. And, and so it was really diving into this teaching in life of Jesus to understand how to embody fullness of life now, not just waiting to die so we can go to heaven uh, and to really live fully now. And mm-hmm. so these spiritual practices were such a game changer in my life that I quit the PCA church, promised to never work in a church again, uh, started a nonprofit that was focused on spiritual direction uh, and, and retreats, ended up getting pulled into the very church against my will initially that was host of the servant leadership second breath. And I ended up becoming not only working full-time in the church as an Episcopal priest, but then eventually as the director of second breath Mm. and second breath. Again, their heart is inviting people to an embodied spirituality. Uh, It is full of spiritual practices. In fact, there's again, I feel so great to promote them now because I'm no longer even, I mean, I'm still uh, a part of a a part-time, a part-time advisor and, and mentor. Uh, But 
there's an app with hundreds of spiritual practices designed specifically to get you in touch with the the wisdom of the mind, the wisdom of the heart and the wisdom of the body. And it's Mm. a real blend of rich Christian spirituality in our tradition and our broad Christian tradition, and also modern research on the impact of meditation and neuroscience and, and the impact on the hard science stuff, you know, stuff out of Harvard and Yale Mm -hmm. and Oxford. And so it it really is just beautifully designed practices that are so accessible. Some are three minutes. You can do as long as 20 minutes, whatever floats your boat. But we find that when people begin, even if they just start with like three minutes a day, Mm -hmm. like even if they just choose to try to be quiet and rest and be still for three minutes a day, we we know statistically in terms of all the years we've been teaching this, anyone that has been putting these things in practice in their life has experienced change, has experienced transformation. It's just how we're made. It's like, to me, it's, it's that like the Holy Spirit's just waiting at our elbow and waiting for the door to crack, waiting for us to open up. And most of our lives are so filled with noise, there's no space. But when we create even a little bit of space, it's amazing what happens, how the coins begin to drop, how we begin to experience make that shift from mere intellectual systems of belief to actual inner experience. So that's, that's what second breast passionate about. They're, they're now in over 110 countries, you know, in terms of their material being used, there's an online school, take you through the inward journey and what it means to begin to dive deep inwardly. But again, and, and I love that it's not convincing anyone of doctrine. You can, this isn't about a theological debate. This is talking about this, this invitation of the way Jesus taught and embodied to live fully and freely now. Mm. Um, and so that's what I love about it. I mean, it's a total game changer for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I can't be more proud of that group and amazing staff and, and what they've done and continue to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I, um, you, you know, in the Calvin tradition, you know, you've got that harsh, harsh, uh, total uh, depravity. Yeah. And so, you know, people tend to not trust their heart, their body. Oh emotions right if you come out of that system and then what's interesting too i've noticed even though the you know the 12-step world is is a higher power and it's not like nobody's arguing doctrine there right right Uh, but um a lot of um people who have gone through addiction have kind of lost confidence in their in their own self right yeah yeah and and have had to kind of trust a program or people around them or community to help restore sort of that sense of, of internal trust, you know, like I, I really lost confidence in myself. I was never a huge, you know, dirty rotten. And I, I, I didn't pound on that one, you know, like uh, right. we're all broken in some way, but you know, uh, God loves us kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, I've noticed that, you know, I read uh, when I was reading Roar's footnotes, I, I found Matthew Fox's original blessing. Mm. I don't know if you've I've read that. That, that mm-hmm. was really beautiful to me. I, th- mm-hmm. I thought, wow. Um, I love the way he kind of put that and live out of, you know, start at Genesis one, two, not Genesis three. And dude, goosebumps. What you're saying is so important. I mean, Fred, uh, I mean, honestly, what you're saying, like if, if, if like that one crux of, and I honestly think one of the most traumatic and most dangerous aspects of, a lot, not all, a lot of evangelical teaching in the West is to convince you not to trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, literally, and once we do that and we offload our sense of identity and our sense of reality to an external framework, which of course was constructed, you know, in the PCA or Calvinistic world, you know, in the Presbyterian church, it was this, you know, reform movement that went up through the angry Scottish Isles and then down to the Southern colonies you know, and you just realize you're still, that was the biggest aha moment for me is that I have been taught not to trust my heart. And they take that, you know, verse out of the Hebrew scriptures, completely out of context of, you know, the heart is, you know, wicked above all things. And they say, you know, they, they use that to make their case and they teach you, I mean, honestly, to, to heal from that uh, harmful trauma and begin to actually know that if the kingdom of God is within Mm -hmm. and that you can actually trust your heart, it doesn't mean that you're not a part of community and that if people are coming and saying, look, you're way off base here, then you need to be open to that. But if you're going to actually experience God from the inside out, that, that, that was, you know, when we talk about epistemology, how, how do we know what truth is? What is our criteria for evaluating what is true? 
I, my epistemological perspective, I outsourced mine to this reform framework mm -hmm. and it did not lead me to fullness of life. It did not lead me to have a life, my inner landscape defined by the fruit of the spirit. It made me judgmental. It made me anxious. It made me fearful yeah. um, while saying all the right things of grace and love and compassion and forgiveness. And it wasn't until I actually made that shift and it came through, I, my first spiritual director was a uh, a Franciscan friar. And then it came through reading roar and getting, uh, you know, starting meditation when I actually started to trust my heart. And I found that when I actually started to trust my heart and it was a massive shift, like people are like, how did you go from like this conservative Presbyterian to, you know, someone that would even be open to being this liberal, wacky Episcopal priest, that it was a shift that occurred when I actually started trusting my heart. And I would say when I started doing that, that's when I started actually experiencing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, like actually from the inside out. And it was congruent. Uh, and, and my heart actually felt congruent with the love of Jesus instead yeah. of this external fear-based framework. And, but it took that awakening to actually trust our own hearts. I, I think that's so damn important. Yeah, I, I felt like my whole guidance system fell apart when yeah. you know, my darkness, you know, three and a half years ago. And then uh, I found that original blessing. Another book that really helped me a lot was um, Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak. Oh, baby, that was required reading at Second Breath. Oh, my, that I, I needed that, that guidance that he has in that book and that. Yeah. You know, and learning how to accept my darkness because I had a lot. <laughs> God. I, I, I was a fallen evangelical yeah, me megachurch pastor, you know, so like, I, yeah. like okay, well, how do I embrace this as a part of who I am? You know, like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to run and hide and die, you know? Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then, and then look, and then, I mean, <laughs> this is, a, I mean, and, and same thing. I mean, I've gone through, you know, so many iterations and carrying so much shame and for years, you know, trying to fight the darkness and fight, find that inner darkness is like watching my kids when they were little, try to fight the waves at the beach. You know, right. the wave is going to win. You can punch and kick, yeah. but you're losing my man. The wave is coming in and yeah, approaching that inner darkness uh, combatively or in a controlling manner versus with curiosity and compassion, which ironically is the way that they become, you know, light. You begin uh, to integrate who you really are and heal yeah. from right versus yeah but that's, that's, well, that's everything well we could yeah that's a i'm still on that that journey greg <laughs> yeah me too man but, like beginner's mind all throughout yeah definitely well so cool man i have uh i i love just hearing you talk about your work and and your journey it really really resonated with me um what so tell us what's going on now if people you know how if people yeah. are interested in this talk, where, how can they f find you? Uh, I found you on Facebook. So anyway. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in, interest, interesting. I've been in, I've been in ministry, you know, at 17, I knew that I wanted to go into ministry. So when I graduated college, moved to Africa, and then for, since then, now I'm 51, I've been in full-time ministry since then. But, so interestingly, one of the things that I've been doing on the side, or just as a part of just to friends mainly, but I've been doing some executive coaching. I would meet with these CEOs and bank VPs and, and kind of create space for their spiritual journey. Honestly, it, it was not uh, overtly, you know, but it was just, again, folding these in these practices into life. And I could go into a work setting that was secular in nature and teach these practices. I don't need them to convert to do it. But what I found was when I'd go into these businesses, like the the change that would occur, like um, real life, not just preaching and hoping, but like seeing people put practices into place, grow and being vulnerable and authentic and building trust in these uh, businesses and teams, like these lives and organizations were transformed. Like talk about real lives being changed. People going from, you know, uh, gossip and bigotry and anger to actually trust and vulnerability and enjoying work and living out of their hearts. So I was just like, it was so fascinating. Like I've been in the church world for 28 years. And it was so interesting for me to actually bring so much of what I've learned in spiritual practice to the corporate world and then watch the impact. And I, and so, and I'm not trying to, it's apples and oranges because I've been around spiritual transformation in churches, but I would say the, the data points of actual transformation and change in the corporate environment that I, that I've been able to work with are so much clearer than what happens in the church world that I've worked in for 28 years. And so one of the things that I've just kind of been drawn to recently 
is meeting with corporations as a, uh, a consultant to pretty much bring in uh, relational vitality, culture vitality, and organizational health. With And the irony is that so much of it, I'm using all that I've learned in 28 years as a pastor, missionary, executive director in these environments. And so uh, for me, it's like, I never would have thought that that's what I've been drawn to, but in terms of what feels like making real impact that is measurable uh, in these places. So currently that's what I'm trying. And I'm an entrepreneur. So I tend to be, I, I know that uh, my executive coach said to me the other day, just you, you want these companies to hire you, just tell them you're not going to be there for more than two years. And so I've just learned that about me. Uh, so this is where I'm kind of drawn right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about this, this consulting and I'm still doing, and I'm still working with second breath in terms of a mentor and consultant as well. Okay. Uh, but, but so that's kind of where, where I am. It's, uh, it's very exciting for me. It's, it's in, in, in practical too. Awesome, man. Well, we've, we've run out of time. I need to let you get to your, your appointment, but uh, it's Greg Farrand, F-A-R-R-A-N-D, Greg Farrand. Yeah. Uh, your Facebook page is out there. Um, Second Breath is, is, you're still a consultant there. Uh, they have a great website and mm. check that app. Check out the app, man. Yeah, the, the app is app. sick. The app is fantastic. Yeah. And that can get you into a lot of embodied spiritual practices. So great stuff, Greg. Thank you for thanks, Fred. Thanks for and thank you for sharing, man. I know. Thanks for I mean, obviously, one massive fruit of all that you've been through is just you lead out of such vulnerability and presence. It's it's really it feels so safe. Uh, and uh, just enjoyable, uh, you know, different podcasts that I've been on, you never quite know. Uh, and I can just say clearly, I think because of your journey and what you've been through, you share, invite, ask questions out of such a uh, kind, vulnerable, humble, authentic space. So this has really been a pleasure, man. So thanks for just yeah. let, letting me be a part of your world. Maybe, maybe we'll bump into each other at the wild goose festival this year. Yeah. Right on, man. Right on. Talk about that's another thin space right there. I'll, I'll, I'll text you and uh, see if we connect or something. So, well, cool, man. Thanks so much. Thanks everybody for tuning in to spirituality adventures and we will see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation. Or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.